Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have Jeff Bajarak, who is a consultant, author, and podcast host, helping organizations to sell and perform better. Jeff, thanks for coming today. I hope I didn't do too much of a butcher job on your name. Hey, you know what? I've been it's called... Bajarak, isn't it? I did get I, it wrong. I'm sorry. I, I have been called Bajorski before. Yeah. Telemarketers. I'm one of those gluttons for punishment who will actually take a telemarketer call every once in a while because I like listening to sales calls and sometimes they're really bad. Sometimes they're not too bad. But I've had people add letters to my name. Interestingly enough, and I've never actually told this story on a podcast before, but when I was in high school, I played baseball and we decided as a team to get together and buy our own jerseys because the school wouldn't pay for them. We'd buy our own jerseys and have our names put on the back of them. Someone misread my. See where this might be headed. Someone misread <laughs> my penmanship, and because it was just a little too close to the the box that I put the letter in, but a capital R looked enough like a Z to where I wore the name Bajazic on my, the uh, back of my my uniform one day. Threw a no hitter. Who knew? Sorry, what's a no hitter? Remember, uh, most of my audience is English. Oh, sorry. Okay, so we have this really cool game in the United States called baseball, and. Um, Yes. Yeah. So yeah, we, um, <laughs> anyway, so the other team failed to get a base hit off of me as a pitcher. Um, I didn't allow anybody on base. I think I walked a couple of guys or one guy All right. was on base. So by, you were throwing by, the ball by I struck some people out. I, yeah, it was, it was a good day. I was outside of myself. What could I say? It was an out of body experience. I didn't even feel like a Bajoric that day. So <laughs> excellent. So, Jeff, could you give us a one to two minute intro into the journey that got you to where you are today? You've probably never heard this before, but I didn't initially want to get into sales. I actually got you a You wanted a proper job. I had a proper job. I was working in a hospital. I got a degree in athletic medicine. So I work in a hospital system in a physical therapy department, as well as on the sidelines, taking care of athletes, uh, evaluating injuries, et cetera. And uh, kind of a unique situation. I decided to leave my position professional courtesy being about two weeks, I gave four months. And they said, well, what are you going to go do? I said, I don't know, but I can't stay here and I'll figure something out. So a lady sat right next to me and she said, you should go into sales. And I said, no, thanks. That's not me. It's not what I do. I'm not one of those people. Come on. You've been working with me for three and a half years. You know, that's not me. She said, here's the deal. You don't know what you're going to do. This opportunity could be as good as anything. It's an opportunity with someone I know and I trust. I told them that I know and I trust you. I think it's a good fit. And I told them you could sell ice to an Eskimo. You have an interview, dust off your resume. <laughs> okay, thank you. And um, you so given the time that I had, you know, I had four months. I had commitments that I had to, that I was obligated to, that I didn't want to give up on. And so um, I had a length of time to think about it. I had a couple of interviews throughout that time. And uh, I said, you know what? I'm going to do this for a year. And if I don't like it, I'm really good at what I'm doing right now. And I'll come back to it. But we'll give it a, we'll give it a shot. That was 15 plus years ago. And I can't imagine doing anything else but that. So I started in the medical device role. I moved to another company that sold medical devices. And then about four and a half years ago, gosh, almost five years ago now, I opened my own business because I was arrogant enough to believe that what I was doing was different and I could help other people understand how. What is it you love about selling? Oh, man. The connections with other people and the ability to prove and, and provide value by solving problems that other people can't in ways that other people can't. 
I used to think, and this was one of the reasons that I was reluctant to get into selling. I used to think it was about products. It was about money. I was uncomfortable with people who knew more than I did and wanted to take my money as a result. And then once I was really exposed to it, once I realized that coming out of a hospital-based position into a medical device position, that this was a different way to solve problems for patients. And I like the analytical use of my brain. So what I love about selling is, in a way, I guess I've never really thought about it before like this myself. In a way, it's kind of like math. You can balance an equation however you want. There are infinite ways to solve those problems. As long as you do it equally, as long as you do it equivalently on either side of the equal sign, be creative. Play within the rules, but be creative. And what I like is that you can solve problems in, in different ways for different people and really make an impact. I've selling medical devices, selling surgical implants, in some cases, walking into operating rooms, seeing patients with crooked legs, right? But after helping a surgeon understand the implant and how it works, seeing that patient, seeing the x-rays after the, the surgery, seeing a straight leg, seeing someone walk out of a physician's office and be able to walk again for the first time in a long time, that's impactful, you realize you can make an impact on people's lives in that way. And look, not everybody sells a life-changing technology. I certainly didn't sell anything that saved anybody's life. You know, there are, there are a lot of people that sell those things, but we're making an impact. This is a force for good. We do good work Absolutely. by applying our talents in ways that other people can't. And I think that's the thing that I didn't understand about selling early on, which is why I was so reluctant to get into it. But that is the thing that lights my fire today is that you got problems, I got solutions. Let's get together and let's fix them. What do you say? That's the sales uh, call. Yeah, I'm, I'm minded of a song there, but I can't quite remember what it is. <laughs> it's probably Frankie Goes to Hollywood or something <laughs> terrible like that. Um, okay, tell me this. You've been around, you're a grizzled old veteran of 15 years. You must have seen some serious acts of idiocy because you know, we both agreed that as a profession, there's a wealth of mediocrity and shit. Tell me, what are the kind of repetitive acts of idiocy, self-sabotage, and sort of general stupidity that you're seeing that make you pull your hair out and think, seriously, after all this time beating your head against the wall, you can't still be blaming the wall. <laughs> but it was the wall's fault. On one hand, this is the kind of thing and the kind of behavior that keeps me in demand. But what really, what drives me nuts is the idea that you can remove a thought process from something and expect it to be wonderfully successful. Everybody's trying to strike gold. Everybody's trying to invent a magic pill or a silver bullet. And we're going to automate it, by the way, too. We're just going to make it so you press a button and it goes. And this insistence on scale at the expense of effectiveness is just ridiculous to me. Like, why try to sell? You, you're trying to sell to a thousand people at the same time. You couldn't sell to the dude sitting in front of you right now if you tried and I handed you everything that you needed to know about him. Please illustrate for me how you can help one person before you try to help everybody at the same time. But there's no money in helping just one person. And that's just a, a terrible perception. It, it drives bad behavior. I see this a lot. I mean, one of the areas that I'm working in is in private equity. And what I find flabbergasting there is that because of their financial, their business model, the 220, mm -hmm. you get 20% of the carry, which is how much they get at exit, and they get 2% as an annual management fee. 
And so they spread their risk across 30, 40, 50 companies. And those companies hit their R&D targets, but they miss their commercial. Then they get second round funding and they hit their R&D and they miss their commercial. And they go on this land grab to try and acquire customers at whatever cost. So they hire people who are discount merchants who will lie and they'll go out and they'll scale. And they'll scale and grow and scale and grow and scale and grow. But there's no real substance to it. So you know, they get to IPO. The strike price is 86 bucks on well, at the opening bell. And by lunchtime, it's down to 34 because there's no substance to it. And they've automated. They've tried their best to get as many logos as possible instead of really understanding that our job is to serve. You know, we are there because of, not in spite of the customer. And if we're going out there and we are being selfish in our selling, you see so many salespeople. I mean, one of my favorite opening questions to a candidate is, so Jeff, when's it okay to lie to a prospect? (laughs) You don't need me to answer that. (laughs) Unless they come back with never immediately, they're out. Because I don't want these people going out damaging my client's brand or mine. And the lack of thought, the lack of planning, the lack of integrity in the selling profession is just, it's gut-wrenching. Why does that persist? You've got companies that exist to solve problems. You've got companies that exist to make money. You've got salespeople who exist to solve problems. You've got salespeople who exist to make money. And I think it, it comes down to the why. It comes down to the purpose of the, the company. And we saw this in 2019, Gosh, I'm, I'm forgetting the, the the name of the group, but it's a bunch of leaders, executives, Fortune 500 companies that came out and, and actually made the statement and said, you know what? Um, for a long time, we've been operating under the auspices that as publicly traded companies, our primary responsibility was to deliver value to our shareholders. Eh, maybe not so much anymore. Maybe we need to think a little bit differently. And I don't think that's just posturing. Now, you've got a millennial generation and then Gen Z behind them who really are purpose-driven. And they piss people off. They piss people my age off. They piss people your age off because they don't do it the way we did it, damn it. And it's like, well, yeah, they're asking questions that we didn't ask because we were afraid to ask them. We were taught not to ask them. Well, they have the guts to stand up and ask them and say, tell me why you're doing this. And if I agree with you, I will do it that way. And if I don't, uh, maybe there's a better way. That's exactly what we need in order to grow and in order to continue to develop and progress as professionals as people, as societies, as as everything. Like we should be asking those questions. We should have a good understanding and we should agree with why we're doing things instead of just doing them. Again, she's not to everyone's taste, but Greta Thunberg, Mm -hmm. her standing up Mm -hmm. and berating the UN was one of the definingly happiest moments of my life because she's absolutely damn right. They'd sit there and it's platitude after platitude paying lip service when they know perfectly well that they are the architects of most of this destruction. But you hit the nail on the head. I mean, every generation's fight. Every older generation complains about the ones coming after. I remember when I was a child, when Moses was a baby, and (laughs) my my parents and my grandparents having a pop at how uh, we had no respect and all this kind of rubbish. Because we were asking different questions. And I think one of the most important things you can do when you're building your business and your sales team is encourage people who come from a diverse range of backgrounds with diverse perspectives and diverse insight. And the echo chamber that exists around recruitment in particular really is 
propagating some forms of real stupidity. The whole idea that experience in a particular sector somehow qualifies a bad salesperson for the job, when what you end up with is that revolving door. You hire Tom, fire him, hire Dick, fire him, hire Harry, fire him. And you just repeated the same mistake. That is the definition of insane. And, you know, let's not forget how siloed many of those industries are. So Tom leaves this company, goes to work for the competitor. Maybe he sits out and non-compete, maybe he doesn't. And then it just, it's a revolving door. And now you've got whole industries that are essentially multiple revolving doors inside a bigger revolving door because he knows how we speak here. He understands the language. He knows what it's like to work in this industry. It's like, okay, great. You know what that is? That's a bunch of safety disguising itself as success. How do yeah. we stay successful here? Well, we don't rock the boat too much and uh, we don't want to go too far out on a limb and uh, we don't want to say anything that might upset somebody because we've been doing it this way for a long time. Seth Godin says, people like us do things like this and that can be wonderful and that can be toxic. And when you're too close to it, you don't see the toxicity sometimes. Absolutely. So it's just like, I know him. He knows, he speaks the same language. We're all comfortable here. We don't want to shake things up. We don't want to upset the apple cart or the, the organizational hierarchy here. So why don't we just hire the safe guy? Everything's going to be okay. And that's the them versus us. If you're part of the us group, if you do well, it's because you deserved it and you worked hard. <laughs> uh, if you mess up, it's because you made a mistake. It was an aberration. And if one of them does something and they're successful, it's because they climbed over the backs of others, they cheated. If they mess up, it's because they're all the same. And it's a huge mistake. I mean, I've worked in over five, uh, nearly 500 segments of the market, everything from billion-dollar defense contracts all the way through to naked platters and female fantasy fulfillment coaching, and pretty much everything in between. That's and a pretty wide range there too, Marcus. It, 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 <laughs> it's diverse, there's no question. And what I've realized is that experience makes no difference. If I go out on six meetings in the industry, I'll have enough industry knowledge and industry language to be able to sell anything. So back to that diversity piece, what I'm seeing with the echo chamber and with the propagation of we've got to play safe with hiring is that you get so many salespeople. I mean, I think it's 44% or 46% of sales reps worldwide last year hit quota. That seems high. <laughs> Bear in mind, quite often what happens is by Q2, they've dropped the target. I don't think you're being overly clear. <laughs> and what seems to catalyze all of this is that there is such atrocious weak, unqualified management in mm -hmm. the sales profession. Because the top sales guy who's left over after the last idiot manager got fired gets promoted and told, congratulations, you are one. Mm -hmm. And the skill set's completely different. So they do what was done to them. And they beat the table, beat their chest and scream and then try and manage the numbers. What are you advising your clients to do to groom and develop the next generation of managers? Hold them accountable to a mutually agreed upon result. And this is the interesting thing. And I've talked a lot to Mike Weinberg about this. I'm fortunate enough. For some reason, that guy likes me and he picks up the phone when I call. I'm interviewing him next week. Oh, tell him I said hello, but you will not find a more genuine salesperson on the planet. And he's so good at what he does. He wrote the best 
book on sales management you'll ever read, Sales Management Simplified. And it's really simple. It's a great book. But what he and I have talked about too, and it blows both of our minds, is that there are not enough sales managers doing what is necessary in order to get the results that they need. And it's because they're, and on one hand, it's not really their fault because they are being asked to manage numbers instead of manage people. On the other hand, it is their fault because they are refusing to stand up and do what they know is right, which is develop their people, be in the field with their people, understand what the ground truth is versus what the C-level executives are assuming that it looks like. And they are not then, because of the situation they're put in, they're not either able or willing or either to hold their reps accountable. And I have conversations with managers all the time. Like, I just can't get this person to perform. And I don't want to be labeled a micromanager. And I don't want to be overbearing. And I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. You sat down at the beginning of the year with your reps. And you said, here is the number I'd like you to hit for the year. Do you believe you can hit this? Yes, we do. What do you think you're going to need in order to hit that? Well, we might need this. We might need that. But I think we have it all covered. Okay, if you need anything else, you let me know. And we're going to get together regularly and judge your progress. Is that cool? Yes, it is. And then we've got mutually agreed upon results, outcomes that we're shooting for. And the manager does not feel as if he's able to ask his rep if she's got what she needs to hit her number. She's hitting her number or she's not. Look, if you're not hitting it, I'm not here to yell at you about not hitting it. I'm just saying, okay, we're a little behind now. Do you think we're going to get ahead? You think we're going to catch up? Is this a timing issue? Did the quarter end on the wrong day? What's really going on here? Let's just dig in here. Because on a long enough timeline, I know we have months and quarters and years and things like that, but on a long enough timeline, none of it really matters, right? Except your quarterly reporting schedule for a publicly held company, even a privately held company, but I digress. They're not asking those questions. And here's the thing. It's not micromanagement if this was mutually agreed upon and you offered to give this person whatever they needed. I'm still offering. Look, you're behind. You missed two in a row. How can I help you? I see you swinging. I believe in you. And I believe that maybe it was my responsibility to give you something that I didn't give you. How can I help? No, boss, I got it. No big deal. Cool. Then they hit it three quarters in a row. And then instead of management making an intervention and maybe flying across a couple of states or maybe a couple of countries in European Union's situation and, and sitting down with someone and looking them in the eye, you know, treating them like someone you know and trust they're not willing to do that. And so then there's no accountability. And then it's bullshit going back up the train or, or back up the, the chain of command about why things aren't happening and there are excuses and everything being made. Yeah, excuses roll uphill. The way I sum it up is that there aren't enough sales managers treating their reps like customers. When you're in management, the people who report to you are your customers. If you look at it any other way, you're looking at it wrong. It because, and I have a weird way of defining selling too, Marcus, is I think that anytime you're asking someone to do anything that they wouldn't have done ordinarily, except for you asking, you're making a sales call. And when they do it, you make a sale. So what are you asking your managers to do? You're asking them to fill out reports. You're asking them to fill out CRMs. You're asking them to make calls. You're asking them to you know, communicate things that they don't ordinarily feel like they have to communicate. If you treat them like customers, you're going to have a much better result. But if you just beat them and tell them that you need something, if you make it all about you, how effective could that possibly be? But, you know, Absolutely. we're in sales management, not sales anymore. So we don't have to think about that. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Making Channel Sales Work. And what my research showed, and it's been borne out by the results that we get, is that the best channel managers spend 70 to 75% of their time in the field, coaching and training and midwifing deals 
with the salespeople in their partners. And it's really tough because there you have no power. You don't hire or fire. Right. And you've got the only currency you have, a trust and influence, and you have mm-hmm. to earn the trust. And so often managers, whether it's direct or indirect, seem to focus their attention on the wrong end of the problem. You can't manage the numbers. Hmm. The numbers are not manageable. The numbers are a byproduct of the behavior that gets, the, gets you there. And as a manager, you need to be somebody who understands that the only thing you can influence is your salespeople's behavior. And if you're trying to wait for their attitude to be right, you're going to be waiting for a very cold day in hell. <laughs> behavior drives attitude, not the other way around. So you need to focus on measuring the right behaviors. You need to focus on a cadence of coaching, sales meetings. Who on earth came up with the idea that it was a good use of resource to put 10 salespeople around a table so that they could listen to people who are behind on target, cringing, suffering for 10 minutes apiece and lose 110 man minutes for every 10 minutes that you're in there and doing a pipeline review meetings with the entire team. That's an act of cretinism. And sales meetings should be a learning opportunity. This is where you role play. This is where you tackle a problem. It's where you get everybody's diverse mind focused on solving a problem. What you don't do is you don't squander the one commodity that you can never get back, which is time. You're dead for a bloody long time. Why would you choose (laughs) to squander any of it on that sort of shit. Crazy. Well, see, Marcus, but you don't understand. We would send this in a memo, in an email, except our reps don't read their emails. So what we need to do Uh in order to make sure they listen is to have them sign in on a log, and then we're going to deliver this information that requires no engagement, no activity, really no mental energy whatsoever. But we just need to make sure they're sitting in this room so we know we at least told them what they needed to hear and they heard it, even if they didn't pay attention to it. So you don't understand our meeting culture here, Marcus. Never mind our email culture, our memo culture, our engagement culture, our teamwork culture, our family culture, our customer culture, any of that. Like, hold on, I could have you here all day. Yeah, I'm getting it. I'm sensing <laughs> you telling me that you're unique. <laughs> uh, just like everyone else. Exactly. I'm just as unique <laughs> as everybody else. Yes. An observation I've made is that 95, 98% of management problems start in the recruitment process. Managers have four functions. Hire the best people, get the best out of them, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day, and protect salespeople from the idiocy of their senior management. Yes, and otherwise stay out of the way. (laughs) Absolutely. If you had hired the right people in the first place, and then you spent your time playing favorites, coaching your top performers. Because again, getting 30% out of someone who's doing 115% of target is better than getting 30% out of Wally Weeklose who's doing 42% of the target. And working on creating systems to enable the middle layer of mush to perform closer to a decent B plus or A player through playbooks and investing time in the field out there, midwifing deals on prospecting surges, making sure that people are held to account and that the pipeline is being unbunged. Because so often 
the pipeline gets constipated and it starts to look a bit Kim Kardashian, a bit big in the bottom. And you waste enormous amount of time listening to salespeople. I remember I was sat in as an observer on a sales meeting and one guy said, boss, I know this is the ninth month in a row that this deal has slipped, but I know that they're going to go ahead because they said so. And the sales manager actually just put it back into forecast. He didn't ask why. He didn't ask the challenging questions. You know, what was the last upfront contract that you had with them when you left as to what was going to happen next? How are you going to advance it in the next seven days? What are you going to do if it doesn't advance? You know, all this kind of stuff. But they don't because managers do what was done to them. It's generational that way. And no one wants to rock the boat. No one wants to stand up and say, why are we doing it this way? And, and what, would it be better if we tried a different way? Because you know what? And I learned this from the top down. It was better for a publicly traded company to do to deliver four cents per share when they said that they would only deliver three than it was for them to deliver 12 cents per share when they said they could deliver 14. It's, it's better to just keep things safe. You dance with the devil you know, and things persist that way because it's just it's epidemic. And that's why companies that are willing to stand up and say, no, 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 we're doing it differently. And we believe enough in our concept that is different enough that we can make the change that we need to make sometimes because solely because of the attention you get for being different. And sometimes because the way that we've been doing it for a long time is really kind of broken and fortune favors the bold in that regard, who are just willing to stand up and say something different. You know, it's, you know, you mentioned Greta Thunberg earlier and, and I'm somewhat familiar with her and how can you really not be? I think people will get caught up in the minutia of whether or not they agree with her and not recognize the fact that she's what, 14 or she's 16 and 16, she's, a teenager, yeah. or she's, she's a teenager. She's a teenager who's willing to stand up and do something so bold and has been nurtured to and encouraged to do that. That's unheard of. Someone of her age to stand up on a global stage and say something, whether or not you want to hear it, I'm not here to argue that with you. Mm -hmm. I think it's yeah. powerful that there's an environment where that can happen today. That represents the progress of it. We can argue orthodoxy at another time. The progress part is, is important. And there's people willing to do that now. I think that's so cool. And that is what is going to make the change that we need. On the subject of orthodoxy, because you've re you used the word, what I see an awful lot of is the echo chamber within sales that always the only way. Why is it that that's allowed to persist at a leadership level? Why are leaders not saying, hang on a second, we need to think more broadly. We think we need to perform those acts of heresy and break the mold. Control and safety. And there's safety and control. There's, there's perceived safety in perceived control. If I tell reps that they don't have another option, you're going to do it this way or they're, the door's over there then you have a locus of control that you can start to count on. And that accountability, there is safety. And Isn't that's it safe. an illusion of control? It is. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. It's not actual control because unless you're there with those other people, you know, that are in your command, unless you're there all the time, you don't actually know what's going on. And we wouldn't want to be there all the time because then we'd be micromanagers. You do it this way. I had a boss, a summer job one time. He said... Just do it the way I told you. I've already made all the mistakes. Just take my word for it. It's going to be, it's going to be good. You know what happens then? There's something to be you said. Your soul. Yeah. Then, you know, what you're stuck with are the kind of people who are willing to work that way. You're stuck with the kind of people who are willing to just do what they're told. 
And you don't innovate that way. You become very cog-like, right? You're just another cog in the machine. You're another brick in the wall, right? Really interesting. I interviewed Gary Lesnar, who was the head of the NCU, the National Crisis Unit for the FBI, a couple of days ago. And they did an exercise where they tried to assess everybody and try and identify common themes. And the only common theme that they could find among all the great negotiators for hostage crises, that kind of thing, was they broke the rules. Mm-hmm. They were naturally rule breakers. They were asking, why do we do it that way? What if we didn't? Why don't we try this? And they were willing to experiment. And certainly, I've seen my career improve dramatically when I opened my mind to there may be a better way and to invite challenge and to engage in constructive conflict where we can fight and we can argue, but you get better that way. They say war is the mother of invention. Conflict in a business, I think, is necessary. It's being safe and anodyne and not letting any of the ripples turn into great tidal waves, I think is the quickest way to drive your business into decline. You know what? And as long as you can sell it and do well for yourself before it goes all the way out, then I guess that's that's fine. If, if again, if you're in the business to make a change or if you're in the business to make a money or to, or to make some money, then that's going to drive your, your motivation. But, you know, you're unemployable, aren't you? <laughs> actually, you know, what's funny. I'm one of the best damn employees your company will ever have. That's the interesting thing. I'm not one of those entrepreneurs that just, that couldn't work for somebody else. So I had to go my own way, but I think maybe it's a superpower. Um, actually, I had a friend of mine, a former colleague of mine tell me, he's like, Jeff, you got a way of telling someone they're full of shit without making them mad at you. He's like, I don't know how you do that. He's like, but you do it somehow. And he's maybe oversimplifying a little bit, but I'm willing to ask questions while like that, while still get my job done. And I think that's I something that a, a lot of people, maybe they don't get that combination, right? My friend, Amy Woodall, teaches customer service. And she says that, if you get good at this stuff, you can tell people to go to hell and they'll ask for direction. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I think, you know, that part of that orthodoxy, do it this way because I've made all the mistakes and this is the right way to do it, I think gets too tied to the implementation and not the fundamentals. We do things like this. People like us do things like this and we get these results. And, and, you know, when you look at cold calling is dead and long live cold calling and social media and social selling is dead and long live social media and, and all these new kind of whatever your trending hashtag is, you know, I, I looked at social selling and I said, so go where your prospects are and engage them there. That's a new concept. Huh? Okay. Yeah. Or account-based marketing different messaging for different companies? Whoa, my mind is blown right now. We need a hashtag to get this across to people. Hey, maybe I'm just a little bit different, but it seems to me that those are fundamentals that make sense regardless of the medium you use them in. So rather than an orthodoxy, why don't we distill what works? And I think in the example I just told about just being able to get away with things while still asking questions, I was able to do it my way because I knew why the way my companies did it worked. And then I could do it my own way because I did the thought work. I was willing to get off my butt and think about things. And when you can understand why something works and then you can do it your own way that you're more comfortable with, now 
you're going to sell in a way that is authentic, which is another kind of overused buzzword right now. There's a lot of people saying that they're authentic when they really aren't. If you got to tell paying lip service. Yeah. But now you can sell in a way that you feel more comfortable about now that you, because you're more comfortable, you're in that kind of state of flow that, that the, the psychologists have, have written about. Chick set me high. That's a fun, yeah. that's a fun name to say. It's even more fun than yours. Oh my. Yeah. <laughs> and I still can't spell it. Don't ask me to do that, but I know how to say it. You really get into that state where you're, you have a heightened awareness. You're really ready to rock. That's fun. I can do that because I can play a little bit with not the rules, but the standards. I think you're pointing to selling through principles. We were talking when we were prepping for this call. Yeah, slow, slow down. My average yeah. first meeting is two and a half hour close rate once I've qualified. Oh. And the beauty is I have to do very little prospecting. Now, right. and I charge premium so I can spend way more time servicing the clients that I do have and ensuring that they derive excruciatingly massive value. You know, I've got clients who routinely will grow 300, 800, 1200, 1500% top mm-hmm. performance. And it's not difficult to do when you focus on the principles and you stop them from performing acts of idiocy. Tell me this, you must have spent quite a bit of time either working with or uh, developing top performers. What are the qualities that you look for in top performers? They're very patient. They're very intentional. They're willing to spend time where time needs to be spent. They have very strong boundaries. And I mean, there's a lot of credit that hard work gets. There's a lot of credit that people credit hustle and, oh man, look at all the work that guy's doing. Yeah. You know what? You're not given, I'm, I'm, I'm going to even switch genders here. Look at all the work she's doing. You're not noticing all the work she isn't. You're not work, noticing all the work that you're doing that she's decided is just isn't important. And when you really look at it, it's, um, yeah, she's right. It is startling to me how many people who have sold eight-figure deals for seven-figure commission checks don't have a Twitter account. Oh yeah, it can still be done. I know we live in a digital age and everything's hashtag digital transformation and we got to get the people where they are and the people are on their phones. Uh-huh, not all of them. And some of the people that are on their phones are not doing the right things with them. And sometimes it's best just to avoid that trap that is engineered to keep you sucked in and addicted to it than it is to dance with that devil. And but they're very intentional about what they do. You talk about pre-call research and doing the networking and, and things like that. Yeah, it's not like they're spending you know hours and hours and hours on Google before the first meeting, which is where a lot of people slip up. All you need to know before that first meeting is how you can start the conversation. Once you got a couple of ways to start a conversation, let it go where it is. I don't need to control where it goes. I need to be okay with where it might go. But then when you do a little more research and go extend after those first couple of meetings and you extend out to the network and where are those people hanging out and who are they hanging out with and what are they into and what are the other factors that may drive their decision here and how can I make sure that I give this whole situation a big hug, not just running up to my prospect, begging for it or begging for him or her to, to like me so that maybe they'll buy something from me. It is a completely different approach and it is one with a much wider field of view. The top performers take so many of those things into account. Of course, they work hard. Of course, they hustle. Of course, they're willing to go to lengths that the average performer is not. However, they're very, very calculated and they have enough patience to decide what is worth pursuing and what is just not worth their time. And 
the secret to, you know, being hyper productive is not doing a whole lot of stuff. That doesn't matter. That gets missed because of hashtag hustle porn and, um, you know, <laughs> whatever the, those out there, you know, kind of touting that are, are saying right now. I also see that they're not transactional. No. What they're looking at is the big picture and they look at how they can solve the bigger problem. Uh, when they're prospecting, they're prospecting for years in advance. They're not prospecting to hit this quarter's target. They're prospecting and they're keeping that pipeline full. They're consistent. They are outstanding at planning. They're well-organized. They're structured. And interestingly enough, what I also see in terms of money concept is they see money as a measure of how much other people judge the value of what they bring. They're not interested in the money because they're making it anyway. It's a byproduct of them doing their behaviors. It's a byproduct of them saying no to a whole lot of complete distraction and not wasting their time on non-opportunities, on pursuits that should be killed early. Their pipelines are absolutely pristine clean. They are focused on having conversations with the right people in the right way at the right time. They marshal the resources of others. And in most cases, they're vulnerable enough to ask for help. And they recognize that you can't fail in terms of your identity. You can fail in role by not doing a good job. But that's always never faith. Name me one sales role that's apart from maybe peddling drugs on the street corner that's fatal. Slow right down. Step back and ask themselves the question, is this real? Can we win it? Do we want to win it? Is this good business for us? Are we the right company to help them? If we're not, then who can we refer? Even a competitor. I think so much credibility is lost because of selfish selling. And the top performers, they're not selfish. They understand that they are there to serve. You're there to serve. Money's an outcome, not a goal. One of, my, one of the best managers I ever had, and still a good friend of this day, he sat me down. He's really one of the first managers I ever had. And he sat me down. He said, here's the deal. Money's great. I've made a lot of it. I love it. I really like to spend it. It's great. Like, it's really, really good for that stuff. He said, but it's an indicator. It's a measurement of how I did. It's not the indicator I'm searching for. You've got to approach it. If you can, you can approach it from the standpoint of making money, but it's going to affect your decision-making. So make sure your decision-making is what you want it to be. And the money will reflect that if you're doing it right. If you help enough people the right way, there enough money will find you. Enough sales will be made. But it's a scarcity thing when it's not about helping your, your customer. Even when you know that your competitor really, their differentiator, whatever, you're selling against it. It's not bad. It's just different. Yeah, this is probably a better fit for you. Well, I can't do that. Why not? What is this about? Look, you've already decided that you can't help this person. Or you're being dishonest and you're going to crash land in six months anyway. Stephen Covey said, if it's not a win-win, it's a lose-lose. On a long enough timeline, it's a lose-lose. Someone may win for a little bit, but eventually someone's going to leave that relationship and then everybody loses. So if it's not a win-win, then get out. And if you're going to get out, why not give it to your competitor? If you know that the person that you're in front of right now is going to be best served by them. Look, we... And we, we talked about it earlier in, in this recording. We can be a force for good if we allow ourselves to. But if we act stupid, if we act immature, if we act as if it's, it's, it's all going to come to an end, if we just say the wrong thing or we're afraid to screw up or, or whatever, 
look, go make some mistakes, learn from them, pass some business to a competitor. Maybe she'll do the same for you one day because you can always agree that if it's really about your customer, because that's what it says on your business card, that's what it says on your website, we're customer focused. If it's really about the customer, do the right thing for the customer. And when you've decided, or when you've both decided that your service, your solution is not the right fit, well, then it makes sense to help them into whatever one is, even if that's the guy that you're fighting against on a regular basis. Look, I, I didn't always drink with them, but I would buy my competitors a beer if I saw them. I may not drink it with them. I may not like them enough to hang out with them, but I respected them enough and they respected me for that. And I had a couple of competitors hire me when I left the industry. You know, they said, yeah, we really like the way you did it. You, you know, the way you did it, why don't you come and work with us a little bit and, and let's talk about how we can implement some of those things. There's, there's a lot to be said about that. I think by doing that also, you demonstrate real credibility to the, uh, the customer. And when there is an opportunity to do business with you, they will come back. Because you've demonstrated genuine care and integrity and that you've looked after their best interest. As a profession, I, I use that term loosely, sadly. Our profession is known, is understood to be full of snake oil salespeople. Yes. And charlatans and sharks. But if you serve the customer by giving them the best possible advice and you've directed them to the best possible solution, then that only builds your credibility because they can never say bad things about you as well. If you fleece them, if you lie to them, the moment you get caught in the lie, they may forgive you, but they will never forget. And that's another critically important factor. Well, and okay, so think about that, that situation where it's either do I try to squeeze this round peg into a square hole and knowing that it won't work, but I got to take a shot on it, or do I send them to the competitor? In one case, you know that, situation is going to crash and burn right in front of your eyes. In the other situation, if you're doing right by the, the customer, hey, maybe they'll do right by you. Maybe they've got a couple of friends that say, you know what, we've moved to this service because it was a good fit, but you got to go talk to Marcus because he really did right by me. And I'm looking at my own situation a little bit different. I don't think it reflects your situation. I don't think you should go with it. It's not that I don't like the company I'm working with. It's just that now I'm better educated. And I think maybe you should go back and you should see Marcus. I've seen that happen. That has happened to me. Jeff, we can't do business with you because it just doesn't make sense. But I've got four or five friends right here on my cell phone. I'm going to pass you their information. Actually, no, I'm not going to pass you their information. I'm going to introduce you to them because I like the way you handled this. And I wish I could buy from you. I just can't because it doesn't make sense, but it makes sense for these people. Yeah. That's happened to me. And if it Absolutely. hadn't happened to me, I wouldn't be able to say as confidently as I can right now that it sometimes is just the best thing to do is to do the right thing. And if you're ever in a situation where you're not doing the right thing and you know it, then you've got some bigger questions to answer. I absolutely agree. What are you watching, reading, listening to at the moment that you'd recommend that you think, yeah, this is great stuff? You've already mentioned Mike Weinberg's book, which I've just downloaded. I really like Weinberg's books. There's something really authentic to the way he yeah. speaks. And you know, it's funny too. I'm at the time of recording, I don't know when this podcast is actually going to air, but at the time of recording, Jeb Blunt just released Inked. And uh, I'm about a third of the way through that book. And it's really, really good. It's approaching sales negotiation from the very beginning of the sales process, even pre-sales process to the, your mindset to the sales process. It's not, here are the things you say, and here's when you walk away. It's like, look, every single one of these steps in the sales process leads to that end point. So negotiation, and it's something that's under-taught and under-appreciated. So I'm really enjoying that book. I have actually, I've made it a point 
in 2020 to consume less content. And, you know, I told you before, when they say it's heresy, you might be onto something. I've got more friends with podcasts than podcasts I can listen to. And I've got a podcast and every week we're interviewing people. I'm thinking of things. It's not like, I don't need to consume content because I'm creating content. It's not that kind of thing. But listen, if you're listening at home, that person that you just heard on the podcast like last week, yeah, I probably talked to them. They're probably in my phone. Sometimes I just pick up the phone and I call them, right? I mean, in some ways, and it sounds really weird to say this, but in some ways, my life is a podcast. That's kind of where my antennas are in terms of you know where I'm, I'm, I'm tuned. So I'm trying to be more intentional about what I read. I'm reading Inked. Like I mentioned, another book that I'm reading is called Whistling Vivaldi. It's about uh, stereotypes and what we can do about them, kind of recognizing them and what they mean and, and what they stand for. And, you know, awareness is, is pretty important when it comes to that. But, you know, I've got a couple of small groups of people who do what I do, some who do things ancillary to what I do. And we're in Slack channels and we're in group texts and we're constantly challenging each other, talking to each other, sharing content with each other. So I don't know that I have anything that I necessarily need to go and, and put in front of people, except that go where, this would be my recommendation. Find something that inspires you to read it. Find something that inspires you to listen to it. And don't pay attention to what the people out there are telling you you should be reading or you should be listening to. Let your own compass guide Good you advice. in that regard. Have you read Anthony and Arena's Eat Their Lunch? Yes, I have. I was. Um, actually a part of the launch team for that book. And so I got a copy ahead of time. And that right. book is lethal. Anthony's another friend and a guy that some, for some reason will take my calls. And I've had him on my show a couple of times. And one of the things I told him was, I said, Anthony, I feel like you and I share a brain. You're just way better at articulating what's going through it than I am. And he's just, he's so cerebral and authentic need to use that word, but that's, that's him. What you see coming through on stage at Outbound, in the books, through the audiobooks, like that's him. I've been with him in person before, and, and that's every bit of him. And he's he's as good as they get. It, I'm a big fan of, of Jeb and Mike and Anthony and, and Jeffrey Gittimer was another really big influence of mine. I was fortunate enough to do some work with him and with his organization for a period of time. And his uh, most recent book is called Get Shit Done. That book lit a fire under me. It was exactly what I needed to hear when I needed to hear it. And it's, it's helped me tremendously just in the, the month or so since I've read it. So Jeff, if you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot 23-year-old Jeff, what advice would you give him to save a lifetime of idiocy and self-sabotage? That's what I would say. I would say trust it. Looking back, my intuition's very rarely been wrong. And I think that there are a lot of people, I think there are very few people whose intuition actually leads them astray. If you believe that something is the right thing to do, it's probably best to check that rather than assume that you're doing it wrong. There's, and it, it's more than just self-esteem. It's this imposter syndrome that, yeah, I can't possibly be right. I've never done this before. I don't have the requisite seven to 10 years experience. I can't possibly be very good at this job. No, your intuition is probably going to lead you in a better direction than you think it is. And just keep going forward. One yeah. final question then. What are you <laughs> struggling with or wrestling with? Oh, great question. I'm struggling with um, what needs to be done versus what I need to get rid of so that I can do more of what needs to be done. Precisely because I have been reluctant at times to follow my own intuition. 
They're saying I have to do this, so I better do this. They're saying I need to do less of this, so I do less of this. Sometimes that flies in the face of what I know to be true, and uh, I need to just go in that direction. So I'm, I'm trying to be a little more streamlined. I'm trying to delegate more. I'm trying to recognize the fact that what I'm doing, although at times it feels like it could fall apart, because that's always the case when you own your own business and, and you do what I do, that there's always something coming tomorrow. And there's always something out there. And even if it all fell apart, I'd land on my feet because I know enough people and I know I'm really good at what I do. So for me, it's really just wrapping my brain around the fact that there's a lot of people who feel like I do really good work and it's good to get that confirmation. And um, that's a, a, a different mindset. It's really interesting. I think what you've demonstrated throughout this conversation is a very healthy self-concept. You'll only perform to the level that your self-concept will allow. And so few people really focus on developing their self-concept, recognizing that they are enough. And even if they fail in role, it's not the personality defect. You touched on something, and Mike Michalowicz came up with a really lovely model. I'm pretty sure it's him. It's four quadrants and it's do, decide, delegate, and design. Mm-hmm. And we spend so much of our time doing. And what we should be doing is saying no to a lot of that stuff and focusing on the high value, high importance, um, high priority activities, delegating more, or just outsourcing or getting rid of it. Because an email, for example, I know it sounds mildly heretical, but often I'll look at my emails about two in the morning when um, my aging bladder tells me it's time to get up. <laughs> I get two to 300 a day and I'm constantly filtering stuff out. So I've learned to ignore them. And maybe I miss a few things along the way. But we should be spending more time on the design element. And yeah. If you're running a business, if you're trying to scale, if you're not passing decisions down the uh, chain of command, and empowering people to make those decisions so they know what the rules are as to when they can make a decision and when they need to pass it up the chain. And delegating, because we can let go instead of being a control freak. And recognizing that the maxim is if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing well, not that it's worth doing yourself. And as I've grown older, I've found that I can do less and be more productive by what I say no to, not what I say yes to. A few years ago, someone said to me, ask yourself the question, if I say yes to this now, what other promise or commitment will I have to break? And who pays the negative price for my positive payoff? For me being the center of attention or getting stuff done and looking, you know, coming in on my shiny white horse, that doesn't necessarily serve the people that I care about. And I've come to recognize that I'm incredibly selfish and self-absorbed. And I have to be able to let go of stuff so that I can focus on the people that I love, my wife, my kids. And too often we make ourselves the center of attention. In 30 years, no one's even going to remember I existed. And my job is to leave a legacy behind, which is to leave the world better than when I arrived. And often it's definitely not by focusing on the minutiae. It's about service, serving others. And helping them get better. And that really sort of brings us around, like you said at the beginning, when I asked you about what you love about sales, it's exactly that. It's empowering other people to get their needs met. That's the thing I love about it. 
Fabulous. That's a much, said, much better way to say yes, it than I did. Thank you so much. I don't think so. I thought you said it very eloquently. Tell <laughs> me, how do people get hold of you? My website, jeffbajoric.com. You can find me there. I'm on Twitter at Jeff Bajoric. I'm on Instagram now at Rethink the Way You Sell. So that's kind of fun. That's new for this year. My daughter got me on Instagram. Yeah, I, I've had a personal page. I've had a personal page for a little while, but you know there are some things that I keep sacred, and that's where pictures of my kids and stuff go. So that's I got to know you if you're going to follow me there. I have to allow it, but you can follow me at Rethink the Way You Sell. I'm going to be performing a, an elite workshop at the Outbound Conference in Atlanta in May. So you can use promo code Jeff 100 for $100 off if you want to come to that. I'm very excited about that. That's a, a group of world-class performers that I somehow found myself invited to. So in Atlanta, the first week in May. But yeah, I respond to emails, jb at jeffbajoric.com. Uh, go to the website. I'm doing some cool stuff. I put a lot of content out there. And if you just enter my name in the first page of Google, probably the first two pages of Google are all me. So uh, I'm not difficult to track down at that point. This is Marcus Kauke signing off on the Inquisitor podcast. If you enjoyed the session, then please like, comment and share and get in touch with Jeff. He's awesome. Fantastic content, really great insight and genuinely authentic. I know he's going to cringe at that word, uh, but he is. <laughs> and if you think that you would be a good guest or there's somebody that you would really like me to interview, then please get in touch. Contact me at M-C-A-U-C-H-I at Sandler, S-A-N-D-L-E-R dot com or phone me on 07515-937-221. And if you'd like to sit in on one of my masterclasses, you're very welcome to get in touch via email, same email address with crash a class in the email subject line. However, expect to be participating. There are no wallflowers. Bring your shittiest, gnarliest, most dysfunctional sales problem, and I'll help you solve it on the spot. But recognize it's not going to be comfortable and you will not enjoy it. That's Marcus Kauke signing off. Happy selling. <laughs>